morning. Today our scripture readings from Psalm 2, and if you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 448. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us your precious word so that we can mine truth out of it and um, understand a little more about who you are, understand the God that we worship. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to not craft you into an image that we would like to worship, even if in our own minds and our hearts, but that we would allow your word to paint the appropriate portrait of you, and we worship that. We worship who you say you are and leave aside the things that we would like to add or subtract. Help us to understand you better as a result of looking into this passage this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We serve a terrifying God. He is fearsome. Well, those aren't opening lines you would maybe normally hear or hope to hear in a sermon. I'm constrained by this psalm to start out that way. Let's back up a second and just think of an example. How would you describe love? I mean, maybe you'd say it's wonderful, uh, it's satisfying, it's fulfilling. But then... You think of a lot of love stories, maybe watch a movie or read a novel, and it's heart-wrenching. And it would fit under the category of uh, tragedy. What's a love story? How is it tragic? Why do so many love songs sound sad? Why are so many love songs filled with lyrics where the songwriter is abandoning love? Why have so many foolish things been done in the name of love? So when we say, what do you think of love? How come we immediately think, well, love is foolish. 
Love is painful. Oh, love is tragic. Well, that's sometimes true of love. But it's also wonderful, and it's also fulfilling. Love is not a one-sided, simple thing. It's complex. It's like a, a brilliant cut diamond that you hold up into the light, and as you turn it, you see various colors that has different faces to it, different aspects. It's the one diamond, but as you turn it, it's a kaleidoscope effect. There's, it's difficult to describe. And so love is has various colors to it. It's multifaceted. And so is God. This psalm camps out on one of those aspects of God that we sometimes tend to uh, you know, push to the side a little bit. But let's skip over that one a little bit. Psalm 2 just really camps out on this one. Almost the, seemingly, almost to the exclusion of the other stuff we know about God, just camps out on this one aspect. And if you haven't turned there yet, please do. Psalm uh, chapter 2. <clears throat> we know that God is not only fearsome, He's also beautiful, compassionate, gracious, He's merciful, but... We have a hard time grasping the concept that is portrayed in verse in chapter two of the Psalms. Now, this is a worship book. It's teaching us how to worship God. This book is is here to teach us how to how to praise Him, worship Him, live for Him. And it begins like this in verse one: Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, before we can understand the fearsomeness of God, we have to understand something about ourselves. Now, this passage is addressing why do the nations gather together? Now, you can look back in David's day and see that there were Gentile nations that didn't want anything to have to do with Yahweh. You can look forward to Revelation and apocalyptic literature that talk about nations are going to come together one time and, and, and literally gather together and fight against Christ, and then he comes down and demolishes them. We're stuck in this in-between time. We can look back to that and look forward to that, and we realize, well, why do nations rebel against God? Well, because people do. Why do people rebel against God? It's because persons do. And I'm a person, and I'm a rebel at heart. This passage is not for kings and for princes. It's for the nations. It's for the peoples. It's for you. It's for me. Because at heart, we have a natural bent toward being against God. Why? Because God puts restraints. Hey, you can't do that. Hey, you want to do this, but you're not allowed to. Hey, you think that's fulfilling? Hey, it's not. Only I'm fulfilling. Over here, guys. Over here, guys. Boundaries, guys. And we don't want that. We're like little kids that go, no, I want to do what I want. No, mine. And we cast off restraints. This is what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Like the prodigal son that's sick of living at home. He said, God, you know what, Father? Give me my inheritance now. Basically spitting in the face of his dad. You know what? I can't wait till you die. And since your heart is still ticking, just give me my money now because I'm taking off. And he runs off. He's sick of the house. He's sick of the rules. He's sick of his dad always looming over his shoulder. At heart, we this sinful bent that we have inside of us, we want to cast off restraints from God. And we set ourselves against God. So let's not be mistaken and think this is just about nations. 
up here. The nations are full of people. And people are rebellious. And all those who rebel, the psalmist has a message for them. There's something you don't understand about God. I mean, if you got this, if you understood this, you wouldn't rebel. You wouldn't want to walk away. You wouldn't want to leave that house. You wouldn't want to go on your own if you understood something about God. He says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, he, he ridicules them. He mocks them for this supposed attempt to be against him. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now the psalmist is painting a caricature. You all know what a caricature is? You're a great America or something, and you got the guy with his little easel board, and you pay him a million dollars, and then he looks at you, and maybe your nose is a little big, a little bit, and then in the picture, your nose is like this monstrosity, and you're like, do I look like that? And everyone's laughing. It's a caricature. He takes your prominent features and sort of exaggerates them into a caricature. It's not a portrait. It's not a photo. It's a caricature. That's why it's interesting. And you look at yourself in a different light. This is a caricature. He's not saying literally God is up in heaven wringing his hands with a villainous laugh. <laughs> you think you're going to run? You think you're going to run? Watch this. You know, no. But it's a caricature. He's taking an aspect of God's character and exaggerating it so we pay attention. And the thing that he's exaggerating so it catches our attention is that God is not indifferent to rebellion. He's not indifferent towards sin. He's not indifferent towards us saying, you know what, God, I don't want anything to do with that. He doesn't go, oh, shucks. I thought, I, I thought you were going to love me. No, he meets that with wrath. He says he sits in the heavens and laughs. I mean, the, the thought that, but let me cast off his restraints. It's totally ridiculous. He holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What's so terrifying? He says, as for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's saying, I've, I'm raising someone up in the line of David that will be a king that will be set upon his, this hill f to rule forever. And all nations, all peoples, all persons, all individuals will have to bow down to the reign of this person. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. Doesn't matter if you think that's unfair. It doesn't matter if you think God has set a king. So he's saying, you can choose a king. You can choose someone to follow. But this is the real king. This is the real person that's the, the person to follow. If you follow anything else, that's rebellion. If your life is centered around anyone else, if your life is just centered around yourself, you're your own king. That's rebellion. Saying, I've chosen a king already. Don't you be try to be the king of your life. Don't follow something else to be the center of your life. There is a center. I've chosen anointed one. And he says that the people are against his anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. And we miss it if we think this is just talking about an ancient Hebrew king. This is looking forward to the coming of Christ who would come and establish reign 
And every nation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Whether they're sheep or goats, out or in, at some point they confess. For one side it will be too late to escape his wrath, and the other side it won't. But he says that everybody is going to recognize that there's a terror, there's a fearsomeness in God's fury, because he establishes his son as the only king. And then the psalmist moves on to tell us that um, there's a way in which we respond. I mean, what do we do with this? What do we do with a God who is <clears throat> has wrath? And he can exact his wrath however he wants and whenever he wants. And this is, this is a theology that bleeds into every area of life and, and suffering. When we suffer, our first question is, why do I have to go through this? If we understood a passage like this, when times are good, we'd go, why do I get to go through this? He's trying to reverse our understanding of God being that patient, loving, cuddly guy that I'll pay attention to him when I need something. Don't do it. That's rebellion. And God doesn't think it's funny. He says, I'll tell of a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, if David is writing this psalm, there's a sense in which God is telling David, yes, you're my son because I've anointed you as king. But he chose him as king so that down David's line, he would get the anointed one, the king, the one that rules forever. Everybody knew that David wouldn't rule forever. He was mortal. And he's, he's pointing forward. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You know, there's a song based on that. It's a worship song, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's really nice, and it's really powerful. And it quotes this passage. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage. And the song is about evangelism. And the song is like, if you pray it, if you ask it, you'll win the nations for Christ. The reason why I have a hard time is when I'm singing that song, my mind goes to the next verse. What do you do with the nations? You break them with a rod of iron. You dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We don't sing that part. There's no less true. God is saying, I'm taking my son and I'm making him king and I'm setting him up on the hill. And all those nations that rebel, all those peoples that are against him, he's going to smash them. He says, you'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, how do we respond to that? He says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You know, if we stop there a second, I, I almost just skipped over this piece that I just really want to make clear. Um, in this psalm, God sets His Son, Jesus Christ, we know it's Jesus. From our perspective, he sets him up as king. And who does the dashing? Who does the shattering? Who's the executor of God's wrath? Who's the one that carries it out? It's Jesus. It's his son. I mean, we have this concept that God the Father is the big white beard guy, and he's like, 
And Jesus is like, Dad, Dad, just give him a second. Give him a second. Hey, I'll go die for them. And then he comes down and he hangs out with sinners and he's loving. And yes, that's all true. And then he goes back to heaven. He's like, Dad, is that okay? Did we save him? No, Jesus is God. And God is the one that sent his son. I mean, when, when Moses was stuck in the cleft of the rock and God went by and he blocked his hand and then he let him, what does Moses proclaim about what he sees about God the Father? The wrathful one, the one that doesn't, you know, there's no nonsense. He says he's abounding in compassion. He's gracious God. Now Moses recognizes the kindness, so the Father is kind. And the Son is wrathful because the Son is the one that's cutting people down. And so let's not do this fake sort of God the Father is the tough He's, he's the bad cop, and then Jesus is good cop. And they do the good cop, bad cop, so we could, you know, they're, the, they're one. That's the theology of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit bears these attributes as well. And so this Jesus will execute God's wrath. And we learn how to respond. He says, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Now, I don't know about you, but rejoice with trembling. That kind of, how do you do that? When you think of rejoicing, you think happy, you think you're, you're smiling, your face is beaming, it's a great day, the weather is nice, your favorite team is winning, I mean, you're, you're rejoicing, and there's confetti, and you're, you know, you bought the $800 finger, and you, you're rejoicing. It's fun. And when you think of trembling, you think of, uh, you know, you're driving and that semi ran the light and you almost hit it and, you're, and your hands are shaking on the wheel because you almost died. That's trembling. Now, how do you take the joy at the football game and the trembling in the near car accident and how do you put those together? Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. I mean, now, don't mistake it. He's not saying, be so happy that you can't contain yourself. And that's the trembling. No. He's talking about the fear, the fury, the wrath. That there's something terrifying about God that we rejoice in him, but there's a trembling to it. I mean, how do those two things come together? The first image that comes to my mind is me as a dad. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which my children both fear me and love me. They know that if they rebel or step out of line, I'm not going to shrug my shoulders. And, oh, well, learn it next time. Okay, maybe you'll obey tomorrow. They know they're going to be met with anger. Now, hopefully I'm not kicking cabinets in and you know throwing pots and pans, but there's still an anger in it. Hey, you disobeyed. And I give them a look. And they know it immediately, that there's something fearsome about dad. But when they scrape their knee or bump their elbow or somebody calls them a name at school, they, they can still, dad, and come crawl on my lap. See, there's, there's this odd mixture of fearsomeness. Now, that illustration only goes so far because I would never dash my kids to pieces. What God is saying in this passage, though, is he's saying you have to take that and it's a love that you don't understand, even as a dad or as a mom or as a spouse. You, 
That love is just a picture. It's just a snapshot of God's amazing, infinite, unfathomable love. But the same is true of his wrath and the justice that he has towards sin. But it's rejoice with trembling. I know this is a difficult concept to get. At my previous church, I remember preaching on the fear of God. And afterwards, two or three people, I remember one person in particular just coming up to me saying, I don't get it. Fear God? We're not supposed to fear God. And I try to use some illustrations, but I mean, it's hard to illustrate something so complex. And so it's like, it's hard to how do you fear God. You either love God or you're scared of him. I said, I didn't say scared of him. I said fear. And so it's this, it's this discussion that needs to unravel. But it begins with understanding that God executes wrath against sin, against rebellion. And just in case we miss it, he says, be wise, be warned. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And he says, kiss the son. I mean, here's finally, here's what you need to do, right? Here's how you serve the Lord. Kiss the son, bless the son, praise the son, worship the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In the way, like as you're about. You know, you're going to Costco and something happens and suddenly you're like, uh, I don't know Christ. I think I'm still under God's wrath. You know, he's saying, kiss the son. Take the opportunity to worship the one that I've set. That's the only way. But listen to what he says. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Or he, he's, he's prone to flare up in a moment. Well, that's not fair. He get, he get, it's fair because every moment that you're rebelling against God and you're still breathing is just because God has chosen not to do it yet. But at any moment, God can execute his will and execute his wrath. It says that God's fury, his wrath, kindles quickly. You know, the Israelites described God as a great fire in Deuteronomy 5. And they thought they were going to die. They said, Moses, you talk to him, because he's basically a great fire, and we're all going to die. You just talk to him. And just come back and report. Thank you. And then in his farewell address, Moses isn't allowed to go into the promised land, but he's giving them a sort of farewell blessing as they go into the promised land. And he tells them, let me remind you something very important. If you forget this, you'll break the covenant. If you forget this, you'll stray. If you forget this, you'll suffer. And he said in Deuteronomy 4.24, God is a consuming fire. And the psalmist tells us, yeah, and guess what? That fire is quickly kindled. And this psalm tells us that Christ is the one whose fire is quickly kindled. Now here's a question. Is fire an occasion for rejoicing or for terror? I mean, we love fires. We, we love to buy homes with fireplaces in them. Oh, does that work? Is that functional? No. We, we love bonfires. We just had one last night. What? I don't know if you'd call it a bonfire. It's a fire pit, whatever. We've got a couple marshmallows in there, right? 
Love that. Cook some hot dogs, campfires, candles. Doesn't have to be a big fire, little flames. There's something about that that the little Glade electric plug-in things don't do. There's an ambiance that a candle will lend because it's a little flame bouncing around and dancing. And last night, three or four of us guys were just sitting around the fire staring at it like we're watching a game. I don't know what's going on in our minds. I thought about that, and I looked next to me, and I'm like, we're just looking at the thing crackle. There's something intriguing about it. There's something fun just stoking it, looking at it. But we also know the destruction it can cause. I mean, (laughs) throw a match in a forest at the right time in the right place, and the whole forest is gone. And those of you who grew up around here, you studied about the Chicago fire. And they say a little lantern was kicked over. We don't know if that's true, but we know it could be true. And they thought the Chicago River would block it. Well, if the Chicago River and these little embers get picked up by Chicago's wind and thrown over to the other side, and it keeps going. And so fire is beautiful. Fire provides warmth. Fire will save your life in the wilderness. Fire will cook your food. Fire will warm you up. Fire will make you feel all nostalgic about Christmas or Thanksgiving. But fire will kill you. And fire will choke you with smoke. Fire will devastate your home. So do we love fire or do we not love fire? We do love fire because we just had one. Well, don't we care that it could possibly, potentially take out the whole church, take out the townhomes? Don't we care that it could burn us? Yes, but there's rules to having a fire. And see, guys, when we approach God, we don't approach God like he's a little pal. We don't approach God like he's just one of us and throw our arm around him. Hey, (laughs) I know I've walked away from you for a while, but check this out. I'm going to start coming to church. You don't come to God like he's... There's terror. When John saw him in Revelation, the first reaction was drop down. Now, that's New Testament. I know in Old Testament, Isaiah said, what was me? And he didn't want to look up. And he describes God's robe filling the temple, maybe because he's not looking up enough to describe anything else. He's on his face. Well, that's Old Testament. Well, John's in the New Testament. He understands the cross. He understands grace. He met Jesus. And he fell on his face. There's a terror to it. There's a fear to worship that we dare not lose sight of. Just like fire, uh, there's rules to worshiping God. God will save your life. God will provide warmth. God will provide nourishment so you could survive in the wilderness of this world. But he's a consuming fire. And there's only one way to escape the wrath of that fire. Here's what's amazing. Here's what blows me away. There's only one way. There's only one place to go to escape the fire of God's wrath. There's only one place to escape the storm, the the life-wiping-out hurricane of God's wrath. There's only one place, and it's in the eye of the storm. I mean, it's not running away from it. It's going to it. Look what he says. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The one that is giving the wrath is the one that we have to go to to escape 
the wrath. How much sense does that make? If somebody's going to take you out, the last thing on your mind is to go up to him and say, hey, can I be, can I be here? I mean, and so what he's saying is we take refuge in him. And so there's this strange escape route. It's not away from God, but it's running to God. It's running to the one that he sat on his holy hill. And the only refuge that you can take to save you from the consuming fire, the consuming wrath, is in Christ. So Christ will put away all those who don't come to him, but he's also the very refuge that protects you from him, from the wrath of God. And he blocks it with his own death. I mean, if you come to him, the death that you would have had, it still happens. He took it. The way that Jesus becomes that refuge, the way that Jesus blocks that storm, blocks that fire, whatever, whatever analogy works, the way that Jesus blocks it is by dying the death that you should have died. The refuge is the cross. That's how we get grace. Now, I know as I was preparing this, I thought, you know, if I were sitting in the pew and I'm listening to this, I would think, but God, you know, um, God's wrath is not for us then. Because the people that who should fear are the people who are out there and don't know Christ. Well, those of us who know Christ, there's no need to fear. We shouldn't worship in fear and trembling. We should worship in, in just rejoicing only. Take the fear element out. Because I know Christ. And I know that wrath is blocked, so why should I fear? Well, it's true in one sense. You shouldn't, if you know Christ, wake up in cold sweats in the middle of the night and wonder, are you saved? You shouldn't wonder like that. You shouldn't experience a spiritual paranoia. Wait, did the Holy Spirit leave me in the middle of the night? A car cut me off and I cussed. Did God leave me? You know, you shouldn't enter into a paranoia because you're in refuge. That's true. But there's another sense in which we need to recognize that God is still the same fearsome God. And even though we're blocked from his wrath, we look at that refuge and we go, look at how this refuge, this structure that provided by Christ is blocking the storm of God's wrath. We always know the storm is out there. What could have been, what would have happened had it not been for what Christ did. There's a sense in which we look at the cross and go, wow, that should have been me. When we sing, thank you for the cross, thank you for the cross, we're not just saying, thank you for doing, for just demonstrating how much you feel about me. It's also, thank you, because if were it not for that action, it would have been me. And so that's, that should strike some fear. We should sometimes worship and say, thank you for the cross, with a little bit of a lump in our throat, because we recognize, wow, that wrath should have been on me. Jesus took it. You know, there's a couple lines I just want to throw out there in the New Testament. After Jesus, understanding the cross. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul urges us to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Be holy. And to motivate you to strive for holiness, I want you to understand you need to fear God. You know you're not supposed to touch that thing because God's anger can flare up. You, you, you don't want to grieve the Spirit. You don't want to uh, flare up God's 
anger. Even though you know that you're not going to go to hell because you messed up, you still don't want to touch those things that anger your father. And he's like a parent who disciplines over you. And there's some of that fear there too. Let me watch where I step. Because the fact that God has given me grace does not mean I do whatever I want. He's still a fearsome God. Ephesians 6.5, Paul's trying to explain how slaves should obey their masters. Let's not do this rebellion thing and all this whole thing. If you're a servant in the house and that's your role in that house, you need to obey the master in that house. He's, he's trying to say if you're in an authority relationship, the one that needs to submit needs to submit to the authority. And listen to how he drives it home. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So he's saying, slaves, obey your masters the same way you would obey Christ. How? With fear and trembling. Wait, we're supposed to serve Christ with fear and trembling? Yes. That's not all of what we feel, but that's got to be there. Philippians 2, Paul commands that you work out your salvation with guess what? Fear and trembling. In other words, don't go out there and like, well, thanks for your grace, God. No, you go out there and you live in the world with, with, a, with a little bit of trepidation, with a little bit of, let me watch where I'm stepping next. Because I'm working out the salvation that was purchased for me already. I'm not earning it. It's been purchased for me already. But as it's working out in my life, I do that with fear and trembling. In 1 Peter 2, another one I found, he just has these little wor- sentences he wants to squeeze in chapter 2. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Now, Peter spent time with Christ, and he knows that God is a loving God, and he saw that Jesus died and forgave him even though he, he, even though he denied Christ, and Christ forgave him and restored him and restored his apostleship. And he says, fear God. So we worship Christ with joy because we're blocked from that wrath. But we worship Christ with fear because we know if we were not under his roof, we would be destroyed. The cross is where God's justice, which can't be compromised, and God's mercy, which is true, meet. His justice is met because Christ paid for it, and his mercy is available because Christ paid for it. The cross is where God's holiness and grace come together. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin, but he can give you grace and you can come to his presence because Jesus purchased your holiness. The cross is where God's wrath and love come together because his wrath is still unleashed against sin, but Jesus took it, and now you can experience God's love. And so the cross is where we can worship God with fear and with trembling. The cross is where we come and we recognize that those two aspects of God that we see, like they look like they're conflicting, God is wrath, God is love, they come together at the cross, and that's where we kiss the Son. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to worship you with this intermingling of rejoicing and trembling. We want to worship Christ with a fearful joy. So we don't want to hang our heads down and walk around in life constantly thinking of how doomed we were. We don't want to walk around in life with our heads lifted so high that We forget what the cross really means. God didn't just do us a favor. You rescued us from ourselves. 
So we ask that as we thank you for escaping your wrath, that we would also rejoice in the cover that you provide in your son, Jesus. And when we're asked, why do we think that Jesus is the only way? We can explain that there is no other person or theory or religion in the world that solves those two things in one place, like the cross. Help us to worship you with fear and with trembling, but with servitude and with joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.